Let us pray. Almighty God, we cry out for your help. We ask, O God, that you would purify the mouth of your servant, that you, O Lord, would give us ears to hear, that, Lord, we would open our eyes and behold wonderful things in your word, and that our hearts would be ready to receive, and that hearing we would believe, and that believing we would be saved, and that, Lord, you would receive much glory from us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, in Romans, the apostle began in chapter 1, verse 17, by saying that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. And then after that, he began talking about the wrath of God, which is revealed from heaven against all the unrighteousness of men. After that, he began showing how all men, whether Gentile or Jew, are guilty before God. All men are unrighteous. Because of their sins, because of their original sin, and because of their own actual sins, all men are guilty before God. Therefore, no man can stand before God based upon his own righteousness. No man can, by the law, be justified in God's sight. In saying all of this, Paul has cut mankind off from every other alternative. There is only one way to be right with God, and that is if God supplies a way for man to be counted righteous in his sight. And that is the substance of the passage we're going to look at tonight. The subject of it is God's righteousness. In fact, the word righteousness in its various cognates appears seven times in this passage. So the word righteousness, justified, just, righteous, these are all cognates, all forms of the same word. Verse 21 in, well, here, let me tell you this. We're going to look at this in two points tonight. Okay, the first of these is that God reveals his righteousness in your justification. God reveals his righteousness in your justification. And that's verses 21 through 24. And then in verses 25 through 26, we are going to see that God demonstrates his righteousness in Christ's propitiation. God demonstrates his righteousness in Christ's propitiation. We look first at God revealing, making known his righteousness in your justification. This begins in verse 21, which begins with the adversative, but now, which contrasts with the conclusion in verse 20 that we saw last week, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God, the term righteousness of God, refers to God's perfect justice. God is good, and he always and only does good. He loves justice. He hates injustice. That means he always rewards good and punishes evil. Now, there are two aspects to God's justice that we need to see tonight in order to understand this passage. And the first is what we'll call the attributive. Keep in mind, there is really only one righteousness of God. God is simple in his being. God is not divided up into parts. But we can consider his righteousness from two angles. So the first of those is attributive. That is to say, the quality or characteristic of God that we attribute to him. 
God is righteous. God does righteousness. God does good. So this refers then to the righteousness that God has in himself, the righteousness that belongs to him. The second aspect we'll call communicative. Communicative. And that means the righteousness which God communicates or gives to others. So these two, these two aspects of God's righteousness relate together in terms of a source and its effects. God is the source of righteousness. God gives righteousness. So righteousness here in verses 21 through 24 refers to the communicative aspect of God's justice. It is the justice which God actually shares with his creatures. He communicates or reveals to them his righteousness. God is the source and approver of the righteousness which man requires, which man needs in order to stand in the presence of God. Now this righteousness is revealed. Some translations say manifested. And the notion that we have to understand here is this righteousness has always been. It was always there. But it's being made known. right? It's being uncovered. It's being shown. It's being demonstrated to witnesses. But look at in verse 21. This righteousness is revealed apart from the law. Meaning, in the simplest terms, that it cannot be obtained by the works of the law. Now, the first instance of the word law in verse 21 refers to the law as a rule or principle, right? Something that you would work at. For example, the law of God, whether that be the law of God in nature or the law of God in Moses. It is simply a rule or standard by which you will be judged. And it is according to that, no man will be justified. We learn back in chapter 3, 19 and 20, that it is impossible for man to be righteous by the works of any law. Mainly because all men are guilty of breaking that law. And you cannot be deemed righteous according to a law which you have broken. Now, that the righteousness of God apart from the law is being revealed now needs to be clarified, and the apostle does. He says that this was witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now, we have a second instance of the word law, which has a slightly different meaning than the first. When you have the words law and prophets together like this in the New Testament, it's a reference to the Old Testament. Jesus uses it this way. The other apostles use it this way. He is simply speaking of the books of the Bible from Genesis to Malachi. The law and the prophets. So he's saying that the Old Testament witnesses this righteousness. that It testifies to, talked about, taught about the righteousness of God that is apart from the works of the law. Now, this shows us that the law, whether natural law or the law of Moses, was never given as a means by which man would be justified before God. God never intended man, fallen man, to stand before him just on the basis of the law. 
Consider the writings of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which are called the law. Beginning with Adam, after Genesis chapter 3, having sinned, he had no hope of righteousness by the law. He forfeited that right. He broke that covenant. And he broke that for all mankind. There was no promise of forgiveness in that covenant. There was no way for Adam to obtain righteousness by the law after he broke the law. The only hope that he had for righteousness after breaking the law was when God mercifully condescended and gave him another covenant and promised him salvation by faith in a redeemer. Or as we saw in Adam's case, in the promised seed. Consider further in Moses all of the commandments. They merely served to demonstrate man's sinfulness and his need for a redeemer. The law set up a perfect standard, the standard of God's requirements for all mankind. And yet no man, save Jesus Christ, ever kept that law. And I want you to think for a moment about all of the ceremonies and sacrifices in the Old Testament. These taught that man was in need of satisfaction, right? He needed to have sins forgiven. He needed blood to be shed in order that he could be cleansed. Do you see, these things were not there to make man righteous by obeying him. These things were there in order that man would understand he could not be righteous by works of the law. Now, he also says that this was testified to in the prophets. The prophets in this designation, when, when it's, the Bible is called the law and the prophets, the prophets are everything from Joshua all the way up to Malachi. We think of the prophets as you know, the prophetical books, but that is the way it was described. The prophets also testify. And we read some of those instances in the book of Isaiah. Those were all prophecies of Christ. Him being the righteousness of God. Him suffering in the place of God's people. Him being victorious. All of these things. We could add innumerable prophecies from the prophets. But think also of all the types and shadows and all the things that take place in all of those books. In Joshua and in Judges. And all of these things were meant to teach the righteousness of God, which is apart from the law and by faith in Jesus Christ. So the righteousness of God was witnessed to in the law and the prophets, but it is now revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. In this sense, we are seeing the shadow gave way to the substance. Think of it this way, perhaps. Think of you, you Christian, you, you know Jesus Christ. You have knowledge of him, you know about him. But do you think that when he returns, you will learn more about him and you will know him more fully than you do even now? And yet it will be the same Jesus. You, in fact, your knowledge of Christ will grow exponentially when you are free from sin and when you see him face to face. Something like that took place in the Old Testament. The Old Testament saints had knowledge of Christ the Redeemer that was completed when Christ came and suffered on the cross. Or maybe think of it this way. Think of a child 
who knows his mother. Even from infancy, he knows his mother. All of you mothers know this immediately, that your child knows when you've left the room. But that child will know his mother more and more as he matures. So it is with the church. The Old Testament church was like the infant, growing into childhood, getting a little bit more information all the way up until John the Baptist. And then with the coming of Christ, that church grew into maturity or adulthood and then learned more about Jesus Christ. And so this righteousness of God that was witnessed to by the law and the prophets is now made known through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's look for a moment at the recipients of God's righteousness. This begins in verse 22, the second half of verse 22. The righteousness of God is revealed to believing sinners. Believing sinners with no merit of their own and through faith in Jesus Christ. So the recipients of God's righteousness are believing and sinners. Verse 22 says, To all and on all who believe, and continues, For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The all here in all have sinned refers back to the all who believe in verse 22. I want you to know that in verse 23, all have sinned is a perfect tense verb, meaning something that has already taken place in the past. Have sinned. But fall short of the glory of God is a present tense verb. We could legitimately translate it this way. They have sinned. They are falling short of the glory of God. This is important for a couple of reasons, and I think this probably refers to man having sinned in Adam, right? He's already sinned, and he is right now falling short. Notice who it is that this is referencing. This is believers, right? Those who, in a moment, will be justified. God does not justify those who are innocent, but rather this righteousness of God pertains to believing sinners. Now, it is to those who believed and have sinned that the righteousness of God in Christ is revealed. I know, dear friends, that you have sinned. Can I ask you, have you believed? If you have believed in the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ has been revealed to you, Uh, it says that we fall or we are falling short of the glory of God. And you understand this, Christian, no matter how long you've been a believer, you are still falling short of the glory of God. The glory of God with respect to man is used in several different ways in Scripture. And I think looking at a few of them is instructive to us. First of all, there's the glory of creation. Mankind being God's greatest creature on the earth. Mankind being in the image and likeness of man. Mankind being the glory of God on the earth. And in sin, we lose and tarnish and corrupt that glory. When we lose the original righteousness wherein we were created, we have diminished and fallen short of the glory of God. 
But then there's also what I'll call the glory of our vocation. What is the chief end of man, children? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's our vocation. That's our calling. Our principal calling in all of life is to glorify God. But in sinning, in disobeying him, or in failing to do what he commands, we fall short of our vocation. Our job on the earth is to glorify God. When we don't do that, we are failing at our job as his creatures. A third way is what I'll call the glory of approbation. That means God's approval of you, right? We talked previously about some whose praise is from God and not from men. And it's not as if God praises man in the sense that that man praises God. It is God approves of man when he does well. When you do good, God approves of it and is pleased. And he affirms it. But when we do evil, when we fail to do the good, God cannot approve of it. God cannot be the approver of sin. And he cannot look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servant, you broke my law. So we fall short of the glory of approbation. And there's a fourth sense that is worth discussing this evening. That is the, the glory of glorification. And what this means is that man will one day have all of this glory, all of this restored to him and be made perfect, never to sin again, never to fall short of God's glory again. But in order to be glorified, we must be first justified. And that leads us to verse 24. It is those believing sinners who are justified. In verse 24, justification, as you know, is God's act, right? It's an act, a declarative act of God. It's his free grace to us, wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Now, the word imputed means reckoned, counted, and received by faith alone. I want you to catch these two parts of it. There's a pardon of sins, but there's also an acceptance as righteous. If God only were to pardon our sins, we would still be falling short of the glory of God. Think of it this way. Suppose for a minute you had no sins against you. You were only not guilty. You would still have nothing. You've only at that point done what it is you're supposed to do. You would have nothing to commend you to God for which he should reward you. Suppose for a moment that you kept all of God's laws, never broke one of them, never sinned, you had no original sin, even if you were perfect, you still would have no virtue or merit to commend yourself to God. You're still just his creature who is merely doing what you were made to do. And God would owe you nothing. And you would still owe him everything. And so that he accepts us as righteous in his sight is the other thing. So our sins are pardoned, but then there's something else. That's the negative. Taking away the sins, but then there's a positive, an imputation of righteousness. God now accepts us as righteous in his sight. He supplies them the righteousness that we cannot obtain. 
Now, notice that this justification is freely by his grace. That is, without any merit, without any effort, without any claim upon God. It is not wages that we have earned. It is freely by his grace. Here again, there is not anything that you, as a creature, could do to make God owe you. Again, even if you were perfect in every thought, word, and deed for all of your life, and even if you weren't fallen in Adam, even still, you have no merit before God. You've done nothing to impress him. But this comes through, this righteousness of God is revealed through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus the word redemption here has the notion of a purchase. purchase. Oftentimes this is used of purchasing slaves. Jesus, by his life, purchased yours. That is why we say we belong to Jesus' body and soul. Not only because he created us, but also because he purchased, he redeemed, brought back us to the Father. So the righteousness of God then is revealed In your justification. That is to say, God, by pardoning your sins and accepting you as righteous in his sight, on the basis of Christ's sacrifice that you receive through faith, reveals to you his righteousness. Let's look now at the second point. God demonstrates his righteousness in Christ's propitiation. God demonstrates his righteousness in Christ's propitiation. Now, if what Paul says is true, then that sort of brings up a couple of problems. And by problems, I mean things that might be hard for us to understand. Namely, how could God, who is just and can no wise approve of sin, how could he just pass over former sins? How could he just overlook them? I want you to think not only about your former sins... But how about the former sins of all the saints going all the way back to Adam and Eve? How can God just pass those over? And then secondly, how could God being just, right, perfectly righteous, how can he justify the unrighteous? How can God say to someone who has broken his law, you are righteous in my sight? And the answer to both of those is that God offered up his righteous son as a propitiation. God set him forth. He displayed him. He set him as a sacrifice on his own altar, as a propitiation by his blood. Now, the word propitiation means a wrath-removing sacrifice. Remember, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Jesus, as a propitiation is a sacrifice that assuages that wrath. In the Old Testament, we many times read about the sacrifices that are a sweet savor unto the Lord. And that's the picture. The death of Jesus Christ, as horrific as we, when we conceive of it, it's terrible. But it was pleasing to God. It satisfied him. He was glad to do it. And so how then could he pass over those former sins? Well, by forbearance, knowing that in time 
he would send his son to pay the penalty for those sins. So the Old Testament believers, you before you believed in Christ, you were being tolerated. You were being held with much patience until the merits of Christ's death could be applied to you. So too with the Old Testament saints. As they sacrificed the lambs or as they looked upon the bronze serpent or as they celebrated the Passover, all of these things, God was holding back, not meeting out his justice, all on the basis of the coming sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And the sacrifice of Jesus Christ works both backward and forward. Think of it. We look backwards to Jesus' sacrifice in time. It preceded us, and yet its benefits still come to us. As soon as we believe, there it is. So too with the Old Testament saints. They believed in the Redeemer to come, and the benefits of that were applied to them. So, Jesus Christ was put forward as a propitiation. Now, how do we receive the benefit of this propitiation? Through faith, verse 25 says, through faith. I want you to think for a moment about the Passover. When the angel is going through all the camps and he's going to kill all the firstborn, the Israelites are to put the blood on the door. And that was to be a sign that the people there are not to be harmed. There's a sense in which you, Christian, have to have the blood of Christ over you, right? You have to appropriate it. Or think of that bronze serpent. If Israel looked upon the bronze serpent, they would be healed. In a similar way, we need to look upon Jesus Christ expecting God to forgive us. We have to have faith in Christ. Or maybe one more way to look at it. Suppose that you were dying from some incurable disease... And you were provided with a potion that would cure you. The analogy here would be you have to drink it. You need to appropriate it. You have to reach out with the hand of faith and take hold of Jesus Christ. In the Old Covenant, when they offered the lambs in sacrifice, remember they would place their hand on the animal's head? And it was at that time that symbolically the sins of the saint were put upon the sacrifice... And God was propitiated. You must, by faith, put your hand upon Jesus Christ. Take hold of those benefits. And that is how God passes to you those things which Jesus Christ earned. Now, the other issue. How can God be just and justify? How can God be just and righteous? He does good. He does, he, if God punishes the wicked and, and rewards the good, I have no hope of reward and I can only expect punishment. But through the propitiation of Jesus Christ, God can give me the rewards of Christ because Jesus earned them in my place. Jesus is that sacrificial animal, right? Jesus is that sacrifice. He is the one who took upon himself my sins, your sins, and God dealt with him according to sins and then deals with you according to Christ's righteousness. So if there's not a substitute, if there's not a trade taking place, God cannot do this. But if indeed Jesus Christ took upon himself a man's nature, and if indeed he obeyed the law for you, and if indeed he died from you and rose from the dead for you, and if indeed you believe in him and therefore become one with him, God can justify you on the basis of what Jesus Christ did. So God, in verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, 
that he, that is God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you see that? God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith. As we've gone through this passage, I want to just point out briefly that we see some causes of our justification. I'll call it four becauses. And you know, sometimes you can explain a cause in different ways depending on what relationship you're trying to describe. So we sometimes talk about like an efficient cause. An efficient cause is the source or power. So what is the efficient cause of our justification? Well, we are justified freely by his grace. Right? So the efficient cause, the, the power, the source of our being justified is God's grace. His unmerited favor towards us. His mercy. And what is the meritorious cause? Sometimes called the material cause. But, but what is the ground of our being justified? Through Jesus Christ. A propitiation for our redemption. Jesus' life given for us is the meritorious cause of our justification. It is not our faith, right? Our faith is not meritorious to God. Our faith does not earn God's favor. The faith is the next one, the instrumental cause. It's the instrument or means by which God passes to us those benefits from Jesus Christ. So even our believing, which is a condition which you must do, you must believe in Jesus Christ, but that does not earn God's favor. Sometimes we get confused and we think, well, we can either obey or have faith. And if I have faith, then it's like I've earned God's favor. But that's not it. Jesus earned God's favor. And you get Jesus when you believe in him. He has to be everything. And then the final cause is the glory of God, or as it's said in this passage, to demonstrate that God is just and justifier. He did it this way in order to show that he is both just and justifier. Now this is where we are looking at God's righteousness in the attributive sense, right? We talked about there's two senses or two aspects to God's righteousness. The first one is the communicative, God revealing his righteousness, giving it to us. Now the second is the, that righteousness which is God's attribute, and we are to see it. And that's what's being Uh, taking place here in verses 25 and 26. God, in punishing Christ for your sins and in justifying you for the benefits of Christ is demonstrating that he is just and justifier. And that's his goal in salvation, to glorify himself. So let me close with just a couple of things. Um, Number one, an an invitation to be justified. An invitation to be justified. I know that you are sinners, I take that for granted. The Bible says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. I take that to be you too. But you can be justified by believing. Now I think and I pray that that's been the case for all of you already. But if not, I want you to take this opportunity to believe, to understand that Jesus laid down his life for you in order that you could be forgiven and stand before God righteous. Second is consolation, comfort. Dear Christian, even we who are justified and even we who have walked with the Lord for a long time have many imperfections. We have yet much 
shortness towards the glory of God. Yet those who are justified, right, those who have taken hold of Jesus Christ by faith, are pardoned and accepted as righteous in God's sight. Remember, it is believing sinners who are justified. They have become the righteousness of God. Right? Isn't that 1 Corinthians 5, 21? He who knew no sin became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God. When Pilate, at Christ's trial, looked upon Christ, three times he said, I find no fault in him. And then the wicked man that he was executed him anyways. But do you know that when you are in Christ and you stand before the Father, the Father says, I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. I accept him as righteous in my sight. Finally, an exhortation for us to praise God for his goodness and his wisdom and his mercy, that he is indeed both just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Consider the wisdom of God in devising how to redeem man. Consider the mercy of God in reaching down and redeeming man. Consider the justice of God. When, when we want to consider the justice of God, the, the wrath of God against sins, consider that it took killing the Son of God to remove that, to to pay that penalty. So the goodness and wisdom and mercy of God are worthy of our praise and and part of God's design in our justification is that he would be recognized as both just and justifier. So let's recognize the Lord and praise him for being just, not relaxing his law, not being a liar, right? Not Not being wicked, and being the justifier, the one who pardons guilty people and gives them the righteousness of his son. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you sent him to be a propitiation, that you set him to be displayed and gave him a shameful and awful death for us. We thank you that, Lord, we are accepted as righteous in your sight and forgiven our sins. Now we ask, O God, that just as you have justified us, that you would sanctify us and one day, O God, glorify us. For your name's sake, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.